following message is presented by Community Gospel Church in Bremen, Indiana. It is our great privilege to share this ministry with you. We in no way intend for this to be a replacement for the local church. It is our prayer that this would serve as a resource to help make Jesus Christ known in our congregation and other congregations gathering across the world. For more information about Community Gospel Church, visit www.communitygospelchurch.com. Thank you, Mark. Uh, For those of you who have young children or are about to have young children, Mark Dixon would love to hold your babies. So (laughs) you think I'm kidding. I mean, if you need a break, Mark's your guy. Uh, Served with Mark for many years. Just love him and his wife uh, and his family. So thank you, Mark. What a prayer. What a prayer. Welcome to Community Gospel. Hey, my name is Jordan. We're glad that you're here with us. If you would, open up your Bible or electronic device that has a Bible on it. We have been walking through uh, the book of Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible, and we're going to keep doing that. Uh, We're in Genesis chapter 11 today, um, and we're going to look at the the first nine verses. And I know some of you are here every week, some of you don't have that opportunity. So we want to summarize everything that we have talked about and kind of give you uh, how we got to Genesis chapter 11. Sometimes, you know, we just start preaching and we think and we assume that people know what we're talking about. And that's not always the case. So if you talk to people about biblical things, you know, you might say things like the Apostle Paul, or you might say James, or you might say Peter, or those words. Never assume that people know what you're talking about. Um, as a matter of fact, I have a dear friend of mine just told me that um, the name of Jesus is even becoming less and less known in our culture today. So we never want to assume that uh, we know what, what uh, or you know what we're talking about. So let me bring you up to speed here on the first uh, 10 chapters of Genesis and get you kind of up to speed. Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 10 tells of the creation of the world. And it's written by a guy named Moses. Moses is a man who is writing to the Israelites. And the reason he's writing to the Israelites is to remember. Remembering is important. We can't let history repeat itself in some places. Uh, A lot of times we uh, remember things like the Holocaust because we don't want that to repeat itself. And what is happening with Moses when he's talking to the Israelites is he's saying, we need to remember these things because we cannot repeat these things. So you have the first five books of the Bible, which are the Old Testament law that's given by God. And then you have the history of man, of him doing what God wants him to do and finding fulfillment or not doing what God wants him to do. And he finds himself frustrated. And Moses says, let's honor the Lord in all we think, say, and do. Why? Because he's the creator. He's the sustainer. We talked about him being Elohim, the the name of the creator God, and the fact that man was disobedient in the garden. Adam and Eve, the first humans, showed up on the scene in the first couple of chapters in Genesis. We saw sin come in. We saw the consequences of sin. And then we follow the genealogy or lineage from Adam, the first man, all the way to a guy named Noah. Now, lineage is super important in the Old Testament. If you're studying scripture, you know, you get to those Old Testament uh, names and you think to yourselves, I'll just scan over these, right? I mean, nobody needs to know these names. But they lead to Jesus in the New Testament. So lineage is important for two reasons. Number one, it gives us how we got Jesus. Number two, if you are pregnant or are going to have children, they're good baby names. So you can pick any of those names. Go for it. Noah 
was called a righteous man. God said that society was on the moral decline. And he says, Noah, I'm going to send this great flood to cleanse the earth. We believe in not only six literal days of creation, we believe in a worldwide flood. And that happened in Noah's time. He was a righteous man. He was chosen to build an ark, and God saved him and his family and a bunch of animals. After the flood, the covenant name for God, which is Yahweh, you're going to hear that a lot in the Genesis uh, series, is making a, a covenant with Noah, and he's saying, I'm going to establish this covenant with a rainbow. We had the rainbow first, just FYI. And so as God puts this promise in the sky to never again flood the earth with water, we're reminded in the book of Revelation that he will cleanse the earth again by fire. So this is a symbol that God keeps his promises. And in chapter 10, you get into this thing called a table of nations. There's all those baby names that are good for you, all right? And in the table of nations, you're going to see a genealogy of Noah's descendants, And you're going to see all this formation of various languages and people who come from Noah. Now, these chapters are going to lay a groundwork for chapter 11 because we're going to study the Tower of Babel. And it is Babel, by the way, because that's a Hebrew word in regards to the fact of like murmuring. And you'll see why in just a few moments. On the top of uh, chapter 11 in my Bible, you don't have to write this if you don't want to, but it's on, it's in mine. I put chapters 11 through 50 is 500 years with four great men. So it's a good kind of summary in regards to Genesis. Now, uh, as we look at Genesis chapter 11, we're going to talk about this thing called pride. And as we start to look and study at pride, let's just all come in to the accountability circle and say we all struggle with this, all right? This is the community gospel support group on pride this morning, all right? And if you're in, just say amen. And those people that didn't say amen, we know, we know. (laughs) All right. All right. Let's look at Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. Wait, pause, stop for just a second. I know some of you know scripture, and I know that you looked backwards before you got to Genesis chapter 11. And if you did that, there's a problem. Because when you start to read those passages, you say, hold on a second, there were already nations that were scattered all over the place with different languages. It's called the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10. So how does Genesis 11 start saying there was one language with people using the same words? Well, the words territories, clans, nations, and languages occur three times, although they're not always in the same order. It is most likely that chapter 11, verse 1 through 9, explains how the arrangement in chapter 10 came about. So in other words, Moses essentially says, here's the table of nations, and you're probably wondering how they got to be the table of nations. And he says, let me tell you that story. Genesis oftentimes goes outside of chronological order and arranges material thematically. So sometimes people are going to look at the text and they're going to say, hey, see, there's discrepancies in your scripture. And you're going to say, hold on a second, because if you study scripture properly, it's thematic a lot of times in the Old Testament, not necessarily chronological order. Okay, now, with that said, we got that out of the way. When Moses says... The whole earth, he's using a relative term, speaking of people's unity, having one language. 
Now, in the Hebrew, that word is talking about the lip, the body part, language. So you could say they were of one lip, all right? And as they have one lip, they use the same words, which is common speak, speech. They're united by language and vocabulary. So this is how, this is what connects them. Now notice, in the passage of Scripture, it doesn't say the Lord connects them. So it gives a little bit of a hint on where they're at spiritually. Verse 2, And as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled in that land. Now Moses says the people migrated. In other words, uh, when you see that word migrated, it's a little different word because basically what it means is they pulled up their stakes. So what we see is they're campers, right? They're those people that leave for like three months at a time. And then we're like, where'd you go? And they're like, we went camping. Uh, They pulled up their stakes. By the way, this year, please don't pull up your stakes for too long. We miss you when you're gone, all right? And they traveled, um, and they're survivors of the flood. One commentator says, these people are anxious nomads, not just looking for a place to land. They're also searching for meaning. And so they come from the east. Now, if you would, uh, underline from the east. This is really interesting. Eastward marks events of separation in Genesis. Whenever you see the term east in Scripture, your ears should just instantly perk up. Because usually what's happening is it's speaking to people who are outside of God's blessings. How do I know? Adam is thrown out of the east of the garden in chapter 3, verse 24. Cain goes away from the presence of the Lord east of Eden in chapter 4, verse 16. Lot, as you know, journeyed east, separating from a man named Abram in chapter 13. And Isaac goes to the east country in chapter 25. And Jacob, who will later be named Israel, journeyed to the people of the... That was a softball. You just say east. It's easy. Now, anytime the word east pops up, we're instantly cautious. Look at the second part of verse 2. People found a plain in the land of Shinar. This is our setting. This is the plains of Shinar, a reference to the southern region of Mesopotamia. This is why you have uh, maps in the back of your Bible, just FYI. So it's not a problem to flip over and see those maps. See, this is another reason why you have an actual version of the Bible and not the digital version of the Bible. Because if you go searching on your digital version of the Bible, you're on Facebook before you know it, and then you're lost. Okay? So just stay in the text. <clears throat> now, Mesopotamia is composed of the Greek words between, miso, and rivers, patamos. All right? And they will leave Mesopotamia, and they will later travel to the promised land, which is going to be the setting of a stage for many other biblical events. Now notice, Moses says these people settled there. There's two problems with that. Number one, this is the theological opposite of God's command in chapter 9, verse 1, to fill the earth. They're wandering away from God's command. Number two, this is the verbal opposite where it says dispersed from uh, them from there of God's command. They're moving away from what God has commanded them to do. The sin of the Shinarts is people in Shinar, all right, is immense pride. They think that they know better than God. And it still transpires today. So even in this setting, 
of two verses in chapter 11, pride comes to the surface, and these people are doing the exact opposite of what God instructs. Didn't take long for Noah to walk out of the ark for people to say, we know better than what God has declared. The same thing happens today. We run the risk of doing the same thing. We read God's word. We study God's word. We see what God tells us to do. We see what God tells us to uh, participate in, where we're supposed to place our lives, and we say, Lord, we are anxious nomads who want to pull up our stakes and travel away from what you have declared as good. You have to be very careful of that. Now, verse 3. And they said to one another, same lip, all right, come, let us make bricks and we'll burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. It's interesting. They knew. They knew God's commands. They understood God's commands. And they start to construct this human city and a tower. Now, these prideful people spoke condemning words because Moses gives us details to uh, the Israelites regarding the Mesopotamian building practices. If you're reading this passage of scripture, you're thinking to yourself, oh, I know about that. They made bricks for stone, they burned them, and they used bitumen. And if you want to, you can write in your Bible, that's just tar, okay? And as they had all that together, they used that for mortar in all of their common ancient Near East building practices practices. This public city is going to have a tower. Now, the word tower there is the word migdal, and it's a Mesopotamian ziggurat, a massive, lofty, solid brick staircase structure. Most of the times when you see these ziggurats, they have seven uh, stories to them, and they have like outside staircases, and they go up. You've probably seen this in regards to that. By the way, I send out an email every Friday telling you about this stuff, and I apologize. I said this is the towel of terror. It's not a towel. It's a tower. So even, I mean, that's a mistake on my end, and I'm sitting there reading that, and I'm going, no, this is a tower, not a towel. So if you're here this morning, you're like, where's the towel come and play? It's not in the text, all right? Your pastor makes mistakes. All right, so this shows people are contending with God himself as humanity wrongly believes that with this tower, they can create an access to the heavens. See, it's, it's good intentions gone bad. They're essentially thinking to themselves, we should make a way for God to get to us instead of asking God how God is going to come to them. So they look at it and they say, hey, we want to access the heavens and we want you to be able to access the earth, forgetting that it's all God's in the first place. They believe the tower would serve as a convenient stairway for not just the God, but all their gods that they have created to come down into their temple and city. Now, how do we know they're prideful people? Well, it says right there in verse four, they wanted to make a name for themselves. If you want to, you can circle the word name, which is the word sem in Hebrew, and it means fame or offspring. Man is constantly chasing, making a name for himself. He is constantly in search of making a name for himself instead of being great for the Lord. These city builders were unsuccessful, attempting to find significance and immortality in their own achievements. They're a lot like the Nephilim in chapter 6, verse 4. They believe that building a tower with its tops in the heavens would make them so famous 
that they'd not suffer the same consequences of Adam and Eve, and they knew the consequences. Look at that. In chapter uh, 9, verse 1, if you want to jump back there, you can. If not, they knew that Adam and Eve sinned, and they knew about being dispersed and scattered and spread out to fill the earth. They didn't care. They wanted to be famous. Young people, if you're here this morning, listen to this. The quest for fame only leads to consequences that are far, far greater than you can ask or imagine. If you talk to anybody who is even remotely famous, they will say it's not all it's cracked up to be. As a matter of fact, a famous actor once said, I wish that everybody could be famous and have a bunch of money so they could see how worthless it really truly is. Man's pride is rooted in trying to gain his own salvation and his own works and his own fame. It's his desire to be in control. We all want to be in control. I want to be in control. You want to be in control. Why? Because it makes me feel good. It makes me feel good when I put all of the shoes back in the place that they're supposed to go in my house. It has no bearing on the universe, but it makes me feel good. That's my wife laughing, by the way, in case you couldn't hear it. Those of you who are online, you're probably thinking to yourself, why do you pause? Because my wife knows it's true, all right? We love to be in control. And part of our control is by saying, God, I'm going to work to gain my own salvation. I'm going to work to gain my own righteousness. Salvation by works appeals to man's sinful nature and forms the basis of almost every religion. Study every religion, and you'll see that it is man trying to be in control of his universe, working to gain favor with God. But we know that Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, its way is death. We cannot work to get to God, so God had to come to us. Yahweh, the Lord, not humanity, dwells in the heavens, and he alone tells us how to be saved, and it is by faith and trust in Christ alone. Scripture contains abundant evidence of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Let me say that to you again, because you probably missed it. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the Old Testament points to this truth. Remember when God told Eve, He said, you will see one who is coming to crush the serpent. And he's speaking of the Messiah, which is Christ. She knew it, by the way, throughout the whole entire, all of her life, she knew it. So what do we do? To remove pride, you have to come to the saving faith in Christ alone. To remove pride, ready for this? You have to humble yourself. And it is the hardest thing in this world to do. Because when we are prideful, we are people in control. It is the man or woman who looks across the table and says, I need help. And we're about to take communion this Sunday. And the table we look across and we see Jesus sitting there and he says, I want a relationship with you. And you say, I cannot do this by myself. I need help. Man builds cities for himself when he should build altars for the Lord. The first altar that you die on is the altar of yourself. All right, verse 5. And the Lord came down. I think it's funny. He came down like his own way, right? Um, He came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Verse 6. And the Lord said, behold, they are of one people. I love how God always like just reiterates the thing that we already know, right? 
He says, the Lord came down to see the city and tower which the man had built. And he said, behold, they are one people. They have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. This is a hard passage of scripture, church. And I'm going to show you why. Because there's a divine talking about a implication that is to come confounding speech. But in Genesis, what we see here is Yahweh, and I love it, always, excuse me, comes in and thoroughly investigates the situation before casting judgment. Does it in the garden? Does it here? It says that he came down to see the city and the tower. Let's just see how good of builders you are. And all of a sudden, the children of man thought that they and their pagan gods would ascend and descend to the heavens, but they did not expect this true living God to arrive. Now notice the emphasis. Yahweh says these one people speak one language. They're united and building strength in numbers. This is where this passage of scripture gets really tricky. The Lord recognizes that by working together, humanity can accomplish anything they set out to do. Whoa. The Lord has given to us great minds. So we ask, well, why is that a problem, right? Like, I mean, if we're studying scripture, we look at this and we think to ourselves, what's the big deal? Is God opposed to a unified productivity? And the answer to that question is yes and no. And I'm going to have you think about this as we study this passage of scripture this morning. After the fall, sinful humanity has the capability to turn God-given gifts and abilities into curses. I think about this all the time. Is there things existing in our life today that we should not access? Is there things that man has created that we look at and we say, this is a gift, when in reality it is a curse? Lord, give me discernment. Even after the flood, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, I love the New Living Translation of the Bible. It says, everything, talking about man, that they think or imagine is consistently and totally evil. In other words, God says this is good, but man takes something that God thinks is good and they put it in a different place. No matter how perverse or outrageous or ridiculous something might seem, mankind can and will attempt it, giving the opportunity to do so. So here's, what, here's, here's where the plane kind of lands for a second. I'm constantly thinking, have we created some things in this world that we shouldn't be participating in? What are those things? I don't know. But there's some things that are out there that we need to be careful about. Because a powerful, united humanity inclined to do evil accomplishes great wickedness. No matter how perverse, how outrageous, or ridiculous something might seem, mankind will attempt it. When you hear people saying, let's go to Mars, they might just do it. But what's the reason and motive behind it? Yahweh has no plans to give humanity that kind of opening as humanity's sin is the refusal to live within God-given boundaries. I think with all my heart, and this is just Pastor Jordan's paraphrased version of the Bible, I think that with all of my heart, God will get so frustrated with us trying to accomplish things on our own, that he'll be like, it's over. It's time to finish this. So mankind, go ahead, create, do what you want to do. But understand that if it's not in God-given parameters, the Lord will frustrate your plans. 
Now, the same language in verse 7 and 8 is used in verse 26. I love that we're thinking today. Let's look at verse 7. Come, let us go down, confuse their language, that they might not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord dispersed them from there all over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Incomplete work project. The same language in chapter 1, verse 26, like I said, is used here, and that's the word us. Now, it could be two things. It could be triune language, that could be one, but it's more, uh, I think, speaking to the divine council. I think God talks to uh, all of the divine council, angels and things like that. I think he speaks to them because he's a God of communion. And then, um, so yeah, okay, anyway, that goes without saying. Yahweh stops progress, though, by dividing people's language. So now we're not of one lip, and he terminates the project. So what? Well, people who speak different languages have an immediate barrier to communication, and it makes it harder for them to cooperate. It says in the passage of Scripture, they left off building the city and dispersed all over the face of the earth. Now, here's the kicker to that whole thing. If you're not going to do it for the Lord, the Lord will make you do it. And he does exactly what he said he would fulfill for the intent of man after the flood. So what we see here is if you fail to be humble and fill yourself with pride, God will break that at some point in a divine way. So be careful if you're prideful because God loves knocking us down a peg so we know who we really truly are. You may, may be dealing with some frustration in your life because God is looking at you saying, can you just humble yourself and maybe ask for some help? Interesting. Verse 9. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. So here we see the nations scatter. If you want to, you can circle that word Babel. It sounds like the Hebrew word confused, which is Belel, and it's uh, written in regards to some secular accounts. I think this is really interesting. One secular account, really old account, says this refers to the construction that took place in heaven by the gods is a celestial city and an expression of pagan pride because every brick that they built was inscribed with the name of the Babylonian god Marduk. Now, if you study any sort of like Old Testament, like gods, things like that, Marduk was one of those gods where people would sacrifice their children to. Uh, they would offer themselves in inappropriate ways to these gods. So it's interesting that God steps up not just to scatter man, but also to eliminate their understanding of false and pagan gods. Now the ziggurat, that step-like tower, served as an artificial mountain with its top in the heavens. It became the center of worship with a miniature temple at the top of the tower. Even in the Lord's dispersing them over the face of the earth, the Babylonians still would take great pride in their building and they would boast of the city as an unconquerable heavenly city. They called it the gate of God. So even in the dispersion, People still looked at their accomplishments and said, look at what I have done. Now, you get to the end of that passage, you think to yourself, well, so what, right? That Babel account's pretty tragic. Leaves all the families of the earth totally helpless. They're scattered throughout the well-known world. I mean, you have no record of a mark for fugitives. There's no rainbow in the clouds here. There's no ray of hope. And if you're Moses' audience, which is the Israelites, You're left longing for a solution. You're wondering if this is the end of humanity. It's not really until the next couple of verses that a solution arises. 
Out of the scattered nations, God will form one nation to become his channel of blessings. These are the Israelites. In other words, this is where our ray of hope comes into play. Because you and I do this all the time. I hear it more and more out of your lips and out of my lips. This world is hopeless. Look at how bad things are. Look at the things that are transpiring. And I go back to passages like Genesis chapter 11, and I said, if God wasn't done with humanity then, he's not done with humanity today. There can still be great revivals. There can still be great passions for Jesus that arise. But the people of God have to sing the praises of God in order for God to move. We look all the time and we say, oh, things are just so bad. Why? Because our sinful nature loves to look at the worst thing imaginable. But our call here is to humble ourselves and start praising God for who he is, what he's done, and what he will do. You cannot look at humanity and say, oh, all is lost, all is gone. We say, no, we believe in a great God who can bring the nations back to him again. This is huge. This prepares us for the work that is still left to be done. We do not sit around as believers and just wait for God to come back and call us home. That's not the call for our life. We're called to evangelize and edify. We're called to share the gospel with people whether they like to hear the gospel or not. We're called to build people up. We're called to make sure that we're rooting for one another. (laughs) Next Sunday is Jersey Sunday and we'll wear our favorite teams. But I ask myself all the time, do I love being on the Lord's side? Do I proclaim the excellencies of him who have called me out of darkness into glorious light? Now, the theme of pride is so important here. God puts down those who exalt themselves in pride, and he scatters with wars and conflicts in a unified apostasy. God's plan, church, will be accomplished with your obedience or without it. And I would rather get to heaven someday and say, I did everything I possibly could to be obedient to you until that trumpet sounded. Funny story, the other day I was driving in my car and I was picking up my daughter uh, from one of our sports practices. I found myself sitting in my car and I didn't realize that sometimes our car um, uh, just like kicks on the radio for no reason. It's possessed. But as the radio kicked on, there there was a trumpet solo and I swore with all of my mind, I said, Lord, it's happening I was so excited. I heard trumpets, and I thought, oh, it's going to happen, right? And then I started thinking, wait, I still, what did I do for you? Oh, man, uh, did I do a lot or did I do a little or whatever? And then I realized it was just the radio. (laughs) And I started thinking about Genesis 11, and God whispered in my ear, there's still time. There's still time. Man, think about that just in your own life. If the trumpets sounded right now, Would we be able to look at the Lord and say, I did everything I can to be fully obedient to you because of the gospel that I have received, because of the declaration of the praise that you have given? It's interesting. The undoing of Babel was explained by Zephaniah. Really, if you run into the minor prophets, which I've been studying those for a couple of months now, Zephaniah retraced this event and he anticipated a great unification in the millennial kingdom in Revelation when everyone who humbly calls upon the name of the Lord will speak one pure language and worship in Yahweh's holy mountain, being gathered from the nations into which they have been dispersed. If you want to read about it, it's Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9 through 11. And as a matter of fact, 
The miracle at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 was a precursor to that future event. So the question on the table is, which side are you on? Which one do you cheer up for? And which one will you be on when the day comes? Hmm, something to think about. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, for those of us who don't have a relationship with you through faith and trust in Christ, I am so ecstatic that we have the whole Bible. I can't imagine being an Israelite reading this and thinking, when will this Messiah come? Longing for the day that the serpent's head is crushed. And here we are this morning realizing that the great Messiah has come. Jesus washed our sins away on the cross. And if you're here this morning and don't have a relationship with God through faith and trust in Christ, make today the day of your salvation. And you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. For those of us, Lord, who are gathered here today, so many of us have made that decision. And we're about to receive the bread and the cup. And God, it makes us wonder, are we prideful? Are we humble people? Do we ask for help? Or do we continue to try to build things our own way? God, I pray this for myself just as much as I pray for the people who are gathered here. If you would break my pride. Just smash it. I pray, Lord, that you would humble me. Help me to realize who I really, truly am. A wretched sinner saved by grace. God, we need to identify with you. We identify with so many other things. The projects that we have completed, the jobs that we participate in, the relationships that we're in, the things that we do. When in reality, the only thing that we should be boasting about is the fact that you have done a great work within us because of the shed blood of Christ on the cross. So God, may we be mindful of that as we take communion together today, as we leave this place, as we go into various places that we're going to populate, help us to be mindful of who we are and what we're called to do to proclaim the excellencies of you who have called us out of darkness into glorious light. Help us to be people who encourage and point to that wonderful, glorious finish line where our faith will be made manifest in the physical presence of Christ. What a day a rejoicing that will be. May that be on the forefront of our minds as we strive to be obedient to you in all we think and all we say and all we do. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Community Gospel Church podcast. If you would like to support this ministry financially, simply log on to communitygospelchurch.com and click the Contribute tab.